changes once they are dismissed. This morning, we are going to be studying Psalm 51, and that's found on page 474 in the Bibles that are provided for you there in the rows. Again, if you do not have your own copy of the scriptures, we invite you to take uh, one of those with you today as our gift to you. Psalm 51, a prayer of repentance. As the week has gone on and prepared for uh, this message, it became clear that a choice had to be made. I could A, preach the entire psalm today and, and keep you here much longer than you planned to be, or B, I could break it up into two weeks, and uh, late in the week I decided I would do that. So for next week, stay in Psalm 51. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, but there is just too much here, too much good stuff here to gloss over. So today we're going to focus on verses 1 through 9. Next week we'll be focused on verses 10 through 19. I will read the psalm in its entirety this morning, though. Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will treat, teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would 
open our eyes and our hearts to wondrous things from your word this day. Lord, as we consider this psalm, the words of David, at one of his lowest points, Lord, you remind us time and again of your saving work, your atoning work through Christ our Savior. Lord, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open and this psalm would change our lives forever. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in the middle of a study on uh, several of the psalms that we find in the Psalter. And uh, we have basically are <clears throat> working through seven different types of psalms that we find. Uh, our psalm this morning, if you've been with us, Psalm 51, you, hopefully you notice a difference in the tone and the content uh, from the other psalms that we've looked at so far. Uh, just last week, we studied Psalm 93, which was a, a celebration of God's sovereign rule over all that he's made. It was called an enthronement psalm. In it, we were confronted with God's majesty, his glory, and his power. We were reminded that God doesn't need fancy robes that set him apart as king of the universe. His character alone is more glorious than the finest robes worn by any earthly king. Two weeks before that, we were in Psalm 121, a psalm of ascents. And there we were reminded that God protects and sustains his people. He is the God who keeps his promises and the God who saves. Before that, it was Psalm 8, a psalm of thanksgiving, which celebrated God's faithfulness. The God who created everything is the same God who cares for his people. Before Psalm 8, we, we began our study of the book of Psalms by focusing on the first Psalm, Psalm 1, a beautiful introduction to the Psalter. Psalm 1 is known as a wisdom psalm. It, it taught us about the life that pleases God. R rather than living as we once did, we're, we're called to delight ourselves in God's word and, and the God who gave us that word rejecting our former way of life, being built up and strengthened by God's word. Psalm 51 has a much different tone, and, and for good reason. It's been said that, that by, by Charles Spurgeon that, that, that Psalm 51 is, is holy ground. It's, it's a common person coming upon a, a burning bush, if you will. In it, we, we find the earthly cry of a sinner delighting himself in a merciful God who saves. As we look at Psalm 51 this morning, I, I, I pray that that will be the attitude of your heart as we come before it. Psalm 51 is, is known as a, as a penitential psalm or a, a psalm of repentance. It's, it's probably the most well-known of all the psalms of repentance. 
because we know the circumstances that surround its writing. But, but also because I think each one of us, at least every true believer, should be able to relate to, at least to a degree, the grief it portrays over the conviction of sin. It was written by King David at one of the lowest points of his life. King David wrote Psalm 51 following the events recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins this way. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rebah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It was a time of war, but rather than leading his army, David stayed home. And the sins that resulted from this decision would produce consequences that would negatively affect David's rule for the rest of his life. You likely know what happens next. Late one afternoon, David is walking along the rooftop of his palace. And he sees Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of David's soldiers, taking a bath. His lust for her leads to their committing adultery together, which leads to her becoming pregnant. This is bad. This is very bad. But rather than confessing his sin, David tries to conceal it even further. First, he sends for Uriah, bringing him home from the battlefield with the hopes that Uriah, after meeting with David, would then go home and, and, and be intimate with his wife and think that the baby would, would, that would ultimately be his. But David did not count on Uriah being a man of honor who didn't think it would be right for him to enjoy the comforts of home while his comrades were on the battlefield. So he slept outside of David's house instead. The next night, David decided he would try to get Uriah drunk, hoping he would go home then and be with his wife. But that did not work either. So David's plan A failed. And plan B, unfortunately, was much more sinister. He, he arranged for Uriah to be killed in battle. He instructed Joab by way of letter, who was the commander, to, to put Uriah in the worst part of the battle, where, where the fighting was the heavy, heaviest, and then have the troops around him withdraw so that he would be exposed and killed in battle. And it worked. Brothers and sisters, this was premeditated murder on behalf of King David. When the news of Uriah's death came back to Jerusalem, David married Bathsheba. So now in the eyes of the country, the, the pregnancy could have resulted in the context of, of the time when they were already married. So David 
at least initially, was successful in covering over his sin. Adultery, then murder. This was significant sin, and and although it initially appears he gets away with it, we know that nothing escapes the gaze of God. And God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David for his sins. And when confronted, David's heart is broken before God, and the painful consequences that, that were promised further drive home the seriousness of his failures. In Psalm 51, David's heart is laid bare before God as he cries out for forgiveness and reconciliation to God. As I studied this psalm, brothers and sisters, I came to realize that this is one of the most gospel-focused psalms in the entire Psalter. It's got it all. It's got the ugliness of sin, the reality of guilt, the need for God's mercy. It has atonement for sin. It has repentance and much, much more. In this psalm, David deals honestly with his sin, with an eye to the character of God. And I believe in this psalm we find a model that we too should follow as we confess our sins when we fail. This morning, from from, from verses 1 through 9, we will consider this cry of forgiveness under three headings. First, a a cry for mercy. Secondly, an omission of guilt. And finally, a plea for reconciliation. And brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that this powerful psalm will instruct us and aid us in our own repentance before our holy God. As you know, we are, are celebrating the Lord's Supper following the sermon this morning. And as we do so, it is always a time of reflection and confession privately between ourselves and God. What what greater preparation than than to see biblically what, what our attitude should look like in confession and repentance? We all fall short of God's standards. And Psalm 51 both reminds us of the seriousness of sin and the mercy that God supplies to the penitent sinner. May God teach us as a church to repent well of our sin. In verses 1 and 2, we we have a cry for mercy. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. James Montgomery Boyce writes concerning God's mercy, Mercy is the sole basis of any approach to God by sinners. We cannot come to God on the basis of his justice because justice strikes us with fear and and causes us to hide from him. We we are not drawn to God by his wisdom 
Because wisdom does not embolden us, though we stand in awe of it. Nor does omniscience, omnipotence, or omnipresence. The only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for a solution to our sin problem is his mercy. In Psalm 51, David is clinging to the fact that God is merciful. Mercy is God's compassionate generosity towards those who deserve his wrath. It's a pity from God that's motivated by love. It leads to his showing us his grace rather than the justice we deserve. When David finally sees the seriousness of his sin... He appeals to the only characteristic of God that could provide him any hope, and that is God's mercy. And David's cry for mercy, brothers and sisters, is is based completely on his knowledge of who God is. He knows that God is merciful. God shows pity to those who cannot help themselves. And David knows that God is loving. That phrase, steadfast love, means that God's love is an unfailing love. He loves faithfully according to his promises and according to his own perfect character. And God's merciful compassion towards sinners exists because of his unfailing love. And that's where we must start as well, dear ones. With a rock-solid confidence that leads us to cling to God's mercy in every season of life. Because if we are honest... We, like David, are guilty before a holy God. In verses 1 and 2, David uses three words to describe his guilt before God, and then three corresponding words or phrases that depict God's mercy. We we see him do this throughout the psalm. The, The first word that he uses to describe his guilt is the word transgressions. Transgressions is often used to describe a legal offense. Breaking the law, if you will. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated transgressions is is also translated crime. And, And we know that crimes cannot be committed without there first being a law that designates them as crimes. That makes sense, right? Laws define an expectation for behavior. To to break those laws makes one a criminal. If you go to the store and you take a merchandise without paying for it, you're, you're called a shoplifter or a thief. You're, you're a criminal. You, you've transgressed the law. And, and David understood that the sins of adultery and murder were crimes against God's law. In fact, there were two crimes against God's law for which... There was no offering of sin that man could make for forgiveness. That's how serious those offenses were. His only hope 
was to cry out to God in his mercy, asking God to blot out his transgressions. Blot out means to, to wipe clean. David wants God to, to take it off the record book. Lord, any wrongs, any, any record of the wrongs I've committed, blot them out, take them away. Treat them like they had never happened. Make it like it had never been committed in your mercy, O oh God. The, the second word that David uses to, to describe his guilt before God is the word iniquity. And David uses the word iniquity to, to describe the comprehensive nature of sin in our lives. A word we would use today would be the word depravity. In verse 5, David writes that he was brought forth in iniquity. He was born in sin is what he's saying. It's a, it's a reference to our sin nature. And in verse 2, David appeals to God to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity. It's a, it's a cry for God to undo the effects of sin in his life. Wash in this sense is used in reference to, to laundry. Why do we do laundry? Because it removes the what? The stains and the dirt from our clothing. David understood that his iniquity, the effects of sin on his life, served as a stain. He's asking God to, to, to wash him, to, to purify him. The, the final word that David uses in, in, uh, in verses 1 and 2 to describe his guilt is the word sin. And, and sin simply means to, to fall short or to, to miss the mark of God's standard. And David understands that his, his sin is ultimately a failure against God and his standards. That, that phrase, cleanse me from my sin, is a, in Hebrew is a reference to the purifying work of atonement. And, and we'll see this more fully when we get to verse 7. But, but it's important that we note that cleansing focuses on purifying the one who has been defiled by sin. These themes of, of guilt and restoration are repeated throughout Psalm 51. And, and it's important that although we move to different areas of emphasis in this passage, that we never lose sight that the basis for all that David is crying out for is on God's characteristic, God's quality of mercy. He's a merciful God. Everything that David pleads for in this psalm flows from that understanding that the God that he is crying out to is a merciful God. He's asking for God's pity, for, for God to do things for him that he is unable to do for himself. God's mercy is the basis for everything that David writes in this powerful psalm. In verses 3 through 6, we see David's admission of guilt. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. These verses reveal that David understands the seriousness of sin and the extent in which it corrupts 
our lives. He's using the same words as in verses 1 and 2 to describe his guilt before God, his transgressions, his sin, his iniquity that he was brought forth in. And and, and true repentance, turning from sin and and turning to God for forgiveness and reconciliation, it, it depends on our willingness to admit our guilt before God. David understood that he had broken God's law, transgressions, He he understood that he fell well short of God's standards, sin, and and that his entire life was corrupted by sin, his iniquity. And, And it's in light of seeing ourselves as we truly are that we find ourselves in a position to both appeal to and receive God's mercy. That's certainly where we find David here, is it not? He is well aware of where he stands before God. He knows what's at stake. Verses 3 through 5, we we, we, we see that that David understands that in order to, to turn from his sin, he needs to admit the problem, his guilt. David says loud and clear, I'm guilty, I I know it, and I know there's nothing I can do to fix it. Look at verse 4. It says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, as we understand the background of the psalm, David's adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, it's easy to be confused by the line, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, we would think at least Uriah might be able to take issue with that statement, right? If he were still alive. Is David saying that he had not sinned against others? No, I don't think so. Not as we consider the context of the psalm. I think the point that David is making is that his sins were ultimately against God in the sense that God is the one who gave the law that defined his sin. Does that make sense? David David is an adulterer because God says adultery is wrong. David is a murderer because God says murder is wrong. So he's saying, yes, my, my sin has affected others, and this sin, if you continue to read 2 Samuel, affects the entire nation. But my sin, O oh God, is first and foremost against the one who calls it sin to begin with. The, the one who says, I'm, I'm guilty for transgressing against his character. David knew it was adultery because God gave him the law. The same was true of murder. God had already spoken on it. Every sin, brothers and sisters, is ultimately against God because it's God who sets the standard to begin with. In order to get right with anyone else, brothers and sisters, we must first come to terms with the God with whom we have sinned against. His law is perfect. His judgments are always true. And in verse 4, David is simply agreeing that God's statements about his actions are correct and just. In 2 Samuel 12, God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David. In the process, 
Nathan lays out David's guilt and, and the very bad consequences that are going to happen. And, and when Nathan was through speaking, David had only one response. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That is Psalm 51 verse 4 in a nutshell. You're right, God, I am wrong. And you've got the right to deal with me however you see fit. In verse 5, we see that David recognizes the extent of the influence of, of sin in his life. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David isn't saying that he was an illegitimate child or that his mother had him out of wedlock. But he's describing the depravity of mankind. Not one person, with the exception of Jesus, is unaffected by the power of sin. And we will not seek the help that only God supplies if we're not willing to admit the extent of the problem. And David affirms this in verse 6. God, you delight in honesty. You're the one who teaches wisdom. I receive what you say. Your, your judgments are true, Lord. I see how bad I am. I see how merciful you are. Show me mercy, O oh God. When, when's the last time we've prayed like this, dear ones? In, in verses 7 through 9, David gives his plea for reconciliation. It's not just enough that he, he wants his sin forgiven. He wants to be restored to God. He writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, any honest Christian who, who will tell you about a season where they've rebelled against God can also testify to the, to the pain and despair that often accompanies that rebellion. God may permit us to find a, a, a measure of joy in our sin for a season, but ultimately He loves us too much to allow that to continue. Ultimately, what happens? There, there's guilt, there's, there's shame, there's that sense of separation from God. And, and all of these things are designed to lead us to repentance. Perhaps what I just described describes how you feel right now in your life, brothers or sisters. If, if you are in a season of rebellion against God, understand that, that any measure of joy that you may be experiencing in that sin at this time is ultimately going to be replaced by pain. And, and that pain is the sweet sting of conviction that God has designed to draw us back to himself. He does not want us to stay there, but in his love draws us back to himself. As with David, God often sends Nathans in our lives to, to confront us in our sin. And, and this too can cause pain. 
But it's the pain described in verse 8. The bones being broken. The weight of our sin weighs us down. And God allows that to happen so that we will turn back to Him for the healing that only He can supply. David wrote Psalm 51 under the weight of his sin and its effects on his total being. He wants to be reconciled to God. He wants God's mercy he, he wants a, a, a right relationship restored with God. In, in verses 7 through 9, David revisits the, the themes presented in 1 and 2 of, of cleansing and washing and, and blotting out his sins. He, he begins in, in verse 7 by appealing for atonement. He writes, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, from a New Testament perspective and even from a personal perspective, I I think verse 7 might be the most important verse in the entire psalm. Hyssop was a plant that we're first introduced to in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, as as God, through Moses, is preparing to lead the, the Hebrews out of Egypt... He's preparing them for the final plague where the, the, the Passover would take place. The angel of death would, 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 would pass over the land of Egypt. And every house that, that was not marked by the blood of a lamb, the firstborn son would die. You, you remember that story, right? Well, hyssop was a plant that they could find and that, that would grow in, in the cleft of different rocks there in the arid climate of, of, of Egypt. And they would take the hyssop and, and it worked much like a brush. And they were to dip it in, in the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed in order to mark the doorpost of their homes. Later, after the exodus, the, the hyssop would be used to, 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 to purify the, the different aspects of worship that would take place. They, they continued to use hyssop. And David refers to hyssop not, not because it was a brush-like plant, but what it was used for. To spread the blood. That was a picture of the atonement that the Messiah would supply. The Hebrew word that's translated purge in verse 7 is actually tied directly to the Hebrew word that's translated sin. It literally means to de-sin or to remove sin or to purify. The purging that that David has in mind is, is the removal of sin by the blood. The, the, the sacrificial system that, that would be established was a picture of what Christ would accomplish in his sacrifice for our sins. He is the, the pure and perfect lamb who shed his blood to, to purify, to atone for his people. And this is the purging that, that David longs for. He, he knows that he needs to be pure before God and, and that he cannot get there on his own. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. And and clean, in this case, indicates a restoration. Sin separates, but the blood cleanses and restores that relationship. Now tell me, dear ones, can we not see the gospel all over this psalm? 
Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, I mentioned in the first point that washing emphasized the, re- the removal of stains, and, and David knew that his life was covered by the stain of sin, and his appeal to God is to make him clean. The, the law reveals the reality of sin in our lives, where we've fallen short, and it makes us aware of our need for a Savior. Jesus, the one through whose his perfect life and his sacrificial death and resurrection removes the stain of guilt that the law reveals. I wonder if you remember that illustration from October when Martin Luther showed up for the kids again. Remember we had Gavin come forward and we had the, the, the shirt that was covered in different stains. Do you remember that? And we made the point that the, the law was like a flashlight shining down on these stains, showing us again and again our need for someone to make us clean. That's that's, that's what David has in mind here. I'm covered with the stain of my sin. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Thankfully, those of us who come to faith in Christ... For us, in God's sight, we are viewed through the lens of Jesus' perfect righteousness. For him, the law never revealed sin because Jesus never sinned. The law's testimony about Jesus is that he's perfectly righteous. Those who come to him in faith are now perfectly righteous on the basis of his righteousness. And this is the cleansing that David desired, even though Jesus had yet to come. He he wanted the guilt that the law revealed removed from him completely. And and later in in Israel's history, God, through the prophet Isaiah, would say, and you guys have all heard this, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And this is a reference to the cleansing work the Messiah would do for his people. In verse 9, David continues, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And this correlates with verse 1 where David writes, Blot out all my transgressions. David's desire is for there to be no record that he had ever sinned against God. His heart's desire what was for total reconciliation between he and God. He wants God to deal with his sin in such a way that it would be like it never had happened. Again, do you see the gospel there? What has Christ done for us? David understood God's holiness and the offense that his sin was against the character of God. And he understood it in a way that we would do well to recapture also. David understood that unless God dealt with guilt and and, and the stain of his sins, then there would be no hope. These nine verses have much to teach us concerning our attitude towards our own sin and towards God. Now, as I close this morning and as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I want to direct your attention to something important about this psalm and about the gospel as well. Just let your eyes scan down the page and answer this question. As you read Psalm 51, who is doing all the atonement work? 
We know that David's doing the writing, but the, the writing is what? It's a cry for God to have mercy, for God to blot out, for God to wash, cleanse, purge. If we go on in verse 10 and beyond, to create a clean heart, to renew a right spirit, to cast not away, to restore, to deliver. David understood that that, that salvation, this reconciliation to God that he longed for, was not something that he could achieve by this laundry list of things that he needed to do to be good enough to be forgiven by God. David understood clearly that if God did not act on his behalf, then he had no hope. Now, a word first to anyone here who may not believe. Apart from God acting on your behalf, you have no hope. The Lord's Supper will not save you. Good works will not save you. Being nicer to the people around you will not save you. Giving money to the poor will not save you. Going around the world, giving your life to help others will not save you. Only faith in the one who showed God's mercy for you, bearing your punishment on the cross when he bore the wrath of God in dying for you, Only through faith in what he's done can you be made right with God. Psalm 51, as clear as anywhere else in the Bible, shows us that we cannot save ourselves no matter how religious we are. But Christian, there's a word in that for you as well. We must never move away from this sense of awe and gratitude for what God has done for us. He did not save you because you're so darn cute or, or what you might do for the kingdom of God or how gifted you may think you are or you may actually be. He saved us for his own good pleasure as an act of his mercy. We didn't deserve it any more than those who have yet to believe among us. It was an act of mercy where he looked down on rebels. Those who had committed treason against him. And yet still showed mercy. Brothers and sisters, that that needs to shape our understanding of who we are and, and what we live for. We, we talk often about glorifying God and honoring God, and that, that sounds well and good. Those are, are good goals, and they shouldn't matter to us. But Why? Psalm 51. At a time when we could do nothing to save ourselves, and we certainly did not deserve it, God acted on our behalf. We'll see next week that that from Psalm 51 that David wants to do things. He wants to honor God. 
But all of that flows from his hope in God's mercy. God is not impressed with our efforts to to delude ourselves on what we can do for him. We, We must come before him humbly and in total dependence. God's requirements concerning our salvation and forgiveness are are things that only God can accomplish. We respond by faith. This morning we we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I want to ask those who are going to be helping with that to, to come forward at this time. This morning we we celebrate the blood that was shed that purges us of our iniquity, atones for our sin. We we, we celebrate the Savior who lived a life that we could not live, who who, who died a, a death that we deserved so that we would be restored to God forever. It's a time where all who believe in the context of this body of Christ have the opportunity to to preach a living sermon testifying of our shared faith in Christ. Let us do so, brothers and sisters, with a much greater appreciation of the grace and mercy that we have received from our Savior this morning. Let us pray together. Lord, I pray that you would use Psalm 51 to shape our lives. Thank you, Lord, for a a passage of Scripture that does not mention the, the, the word Messiah or the name Jesus, yet spells out so clearly the salvation that only you can offer. Lord, I pray for those among us that have yet to believe. Lord, I pray that you would strip away everything that they are trusting in, Lord, that they would see the seriousness of their sin against you. And Lord, they would plea, uh, that they would plea for mercy and run to the cross where their sins could be forgiven. Lord, for those of us that believe, Lord, we all confess that there are times that we lose sight of, uh, of how desperately we need the, the work that Jesus has done for us. Lord, our, our growth as your followers is, is dependent upon our never leaving the school of the cross, never losing sight of the fact that all that we have has been secured by by the faithfulness of Jesus. So Lord, even as you draw us back to to that basic reality of what Jesus has done for us, Lord, would you use it to to transform our faith in our lives, I pray. Lord, be glorified among us in this church, in this celebration of worship, through through the celebrating of, of of the supper that you instituted that testifies to your sacrifice, O Lord. And even as we leave this place, Lord, may our lives reflect the beauty of your gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.